The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks that you are God who makes a way, and we give you great thanks for the two testimonies that we heard here. We acknowledge your remarkable hand at work in these two lives and in numbers of others in our church body. We acknowledge your hand there. We give you thanks for it. You give thanks for how you worked in the physical realities physical health things they were discussing, but also we give you thanks for how you worked in the spiritual realities within their hearts to give these two men and their families peace, to give them rest, hope in you, because there was no guarantee that you would make a way by saving their lives. But you made a way to rest and peace in you, and that you assure us of. We give you thanks for that. We stand and praise you for it. Remarkable things. And Father, now for each of us here, we also come to you now in prayer asking you to convince us that this is the kind of God that you are. Not just that this is something that you have done, but this is the kind of God you are. You are at work here in our world with each one of us always, giving grace such as this to make a way for our hearts to rest in you. Lord, convince us of that this morning. Show it to us in the scriptures. Draw from us then steadfastness and commitment to you. The chronicler wrote that your eye roams to and fro on the earth looking to give strong support to the one whose heart is blameless before you or steadfast and true before you. Make us a people like that, that are bent towards you and fastened to you, convinced of who you are and hoping only in you, and give us strong support as we walk through life. Lord, use the Scriptures towards that end, I pray. Give clarity to my words. Give focus to our thinking. Grow in us trust and hope and bring praise and glory to Christ through this, I pray. In his name, amen. The theme running through that choir performance there, which I honestly did not know they were doing, is exactly the theme that we're talking about this morning. Providential, huh? Looking back so as to move forward, looking back at what God does, at the kind of God that He is, the way that He operates. And based on that then, looking forward and walking with Him, trusting that, walking with Him into the future. That's exactly what we're going to be looking at today in Acts chapter 21. Last week, in the second half of Acts 20, we listened in as Paul made a farewell address to the elders from the Ephesian church. He spoke to them some encouraging and some challenging words, and we looked at those last week. He told them and reminded all of us that God 
passionately, deeply loves his church, his people, as evidenced in the value of the price he paid for it, for them, the blood of his own, an intimate reference to his own, his own son, Jesus. He bought the church with the blood of his dearly beloved own son. God the Father sent God the Son to purchase the church, his most valuable possession, to buy his most valuable possession, his people. He deeply loves his church and therefore is not just going to leave them when he saves them, but he actually stays with them to minister to his people, to grow them up. Primarily, we saw through the ministry of the word. Saw that modeled by Paul as he taught everyone, everything, everywhere, always. The emphasis of what he says he did. And then when he leaves, God appoints elders to carry on that same ministry. To minister the word and to model the Christian life for the people. To shepherd them, to guard them, to keep them. It's a high calling. And such a commitment requires from elders, and in fact from all of us, because all of us are called to be a part of Christ's global mission and then called to individual personal things according to who we are, what stage of life we're in. If we're going to fulfill those callings on us, be they elder or other, it's going to require a reorientation of our priorities, a switching of our priorities from self and self-preservation first to Christ and Christ's kingdom first and self second, cost whatever it may. That has to happen, that reprioritization of Christ and his kingdom first. And that same theme is touched on again today in Acts 21. That's the mindset. We're going to look at it. It's a little bit different today, but it's a similar mindset today. Last week, the means to get to that mindset was the ministry of the word. When Paul leaves, after he's challenged them, he entrusts them to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up, he said. This week, the means to get to that similar mindset is looking back so as to move forward in that mindset. It's a slightly different means, looking back at life and at history, finding out who God is from what he's done. So we're going to be looking at today. Let me read the passage, Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. 21-1. And when we had parted from them, those, those elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, and there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. The background thread running through this passage is obviously Paul's journey from what was now western Turkey near Ephesus through the Mediterranean over to Jerusalem, into Judea. We've seen travel logs like this before in, in Luke, but this one's a little different in that Luke adds a number of important details. So there's more going on here than just a how he got from A to B. He's traveling with a group of people we've seen before, representatives of each of the three missionary journeys from those churches that he planted. And he's also traveling with Luke. You'll notice the, the pronoun is we. Luke is back with them at beginning in last week. So Luke's traveling along, the guy who wrote this book, traveling with them, with disciples from these different churches throughout Asia and Greece. And they're hopping along the, the coast of Turkey from point to point, little coast ships, until they find a, a major seafaring ship that's going to cut directly across the Mediterranean and, and take them over towards Jerusalem. And they set sail in verse 3. And it says, Luke adds, that they sailed past Cyprus with inside of it, leaving it on the left. This is not an incidental detail. If you pass Cyprus... Leaving it on the left, what you're doing is you're passing around the southwest corner of this sort of rectangular island, passing the southwest corner where the capital port city of Paphos is, as in the Paphos from Acts chapter 13. And here there's a beginning of a theme that runs through this section, touch points with the past. They pass around Cyprus within sight of the coast, where Paphos was, where Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 had ministered there. Now, we don't know. Could they see the buildings? Was, was the governor's palace prominent? We don't know, but they knew where they were, and Paul could not have forgotten how mighty the hand of the Lord had been for him there. He had encountered the false prophet Elamus, seeking to oppose the gospel, and God in might had struck that man blind at the word of Paul and opened the eyes of the Roman proconsul and converted him couldn't have forgotten that as they passed within sight of where it happened. Perhaps they told the stories then. Maybe that's how Luke knew what to write in chapter 13. They touch with Cyprus when they pass by and leave it on the left and they move on. They finally reach all the way to Tyre and they land there, which is on the coast, Palestine essentially. And while the ship tended to some business there, they sought out and found the church. They didn't know this church, but they knew there was one there. They sought it out, they found it, and they developed a close relationship with the disciples there, as evidenced by the nature of their parting when they left a week later. But while they were there, verse 4 records an incident that Paul says has been happening very frequently. In the previous chapter, in verses 22 and 23, Paul had said, I am both constrained by the Spirit and warned by the Spirit. 
I'm constrained. I'm bound. The Spirit has me bound and is taking me to Jerusalem. I know that I'm supposed to go there. And in every city where I go, the Spirit also tells me that trouble is waiting. So both of these things, the Spirit is doing both of these things in Paul's life, taking him and warning him. And here in Tyre, there's another warning. It says in verse 4 that they spoke through the Spirit to him, warning him not to go on to Jerusalem, asking him not to go. Just like has happened in previous cities. They find out, probably referring to prophetic speaking through people in the local church there, Paul, your life is in danger if you move on. And they take that and say, so don't go. And Paul hears their warning. He hears their urging. He knows that they love him, that he can tell that, but he also knows that the Spirit has told him he has to go. So he says, thank you, but moves on anyway. And they part sweet friends, and they leave and move on to Ptolemais, where they spend a day there with the church, and then move on to Caesarea. And here's another connect point back with the past. With whom do they stay in Caesarea? Philip, one of the seven, the evangelist. This ties Philip back to Acts chapter 6 and chapter 8. He's one of those seven who were selected, one of those early deacon types who were selected to minister to some of the needs there in the church. And then after the persecution broke out in chapter 7, he's one of those scattered who spread the gospel wherever he went in chapter 8, spreading the gospel into Samaria, evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and then it says traveling all up the coast, probably planting the churches that Paul just visited in Tyre and Ptolemais, until he settled in Caesarea. And here he is now later, a different stage in life, raising a family. And what a family he has. He has four daughters who are prophetesses. They have the gift of prophecy. Now, they're probably, from how they're described and given the time frame, they're probably teenagers and younger, and they all four have the gift of prophecy, which is interesting to note because they're not the ones who deliver the prophecy. Agabus, this guy coming up, does. He's just indicating they're prophets, which ties us back to Acts 2. Pentecost, the prophecy of Joel, that in the last days God would come and would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and even your sons and your daughters would prophesy. It's happening. Even daughters. In the economy of that day, the social economy of that day, unmarried girls are not valuable commodities. But they are in God's sight. And he even gives to them this gift of prophecy. Four of them in this house. Abundantly blessing. So he's there, they're waiting there for a number of days. Probably Luke's catching up on what he should write in chapter 6 and chapter 8. And then Agabus arrives. Another touch point with the past. This time, Agabus is from chapter 11. The last time Paul saw Agabus was in Antioch, one of those churches planted by those who fled the persecution. Paul was in Antioch there when Agabus came down and delivered another message about trouble in Jerusalem. This time it was trouble for the church in Jerusalem, and God worked to move the Antiochian Christians, Gentiles, to give to alleviate this trouble amongst the Jewish Christians. Agabus comes, and he has another message about trouble in Jerusalem. This time, though, it's for Paul. And he takes his belt, which really would not be a kind of belt that we wear. It would be a long, thin garment that was used to kind of wind around and wrap up the cloaks and robes that they would wear. So he's t- taking this long cloth garment, and he binds his own, his own hands and his own feet and says, 
this is, he's acting out like an Old Testament prophet would, this is what's going to happen to the guy who owns this. In Jerusalem, they're going to bind you up, and they're going to eventually hand you over to the Gentiles. At which, all the Christians hear that, and they respond by begging him, please don't go. They care about Paul. They don't want him to face that. Again and again and again, in every city that I go, I hear this same warning. Trouble awaits. And it's not an opportunity. It's not another opportunity, another opportunity, another opportunity for Paul to turn away. God's not speaking to him and warning him, I'm telling you again, leave. I'm telling you, turn back. Don't go. He's not saying that because we already know he's saying go. Chapter 19 and 20 both record Paul saying, the Spirit told me to go. And he warns me. So what's the Spirit doing when he warns him and warns him and warns him? He's providing an opportunity for Paul to display steadfast commitment to the will of God even amidst known hardship. You see, it's not that big of a deal if he arrives in Jerusalem and what do you know, people here don't like me and I couldn't have done anything to avoid this. But the commitment is shown in knowing something bad and hard is going to happen He obeys the Lord anyway and moves into it. God's providing an opportunity where it can be seen by everybody what's going on here. Here is a Christian steadfastly committed to my will knowing trouble awaits. And he is steadfastly committed to my will. He does not count his own life as precious to him but counts my will and my kingdom as supreme. And he's ready to do even lay down his life that my will would be done in his life. Look, watch Paul walk through this knowingly. He's going to show something about himself, his supreme value when Paul says, I'm ready to do anything for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus, for the sake of his glory. He's going to show something about the glory of Christ. To Paul, to those who watch, and they finally say, Let the will of the Lord be done. That's a good place to end up. And that's where they end. And eventually they leave there. They move on, escorted by some of the Christians. They move on and go up to Jerusalem where they meet Manasin. And here's the final touch point with the past in this passage. Manasin himself is not mentioned previously in the book of Acts. But in describing him as from Cyprus and as being an early disciple, literally it's an ancient disciple, There seems to be a connect point back here with way back early church. This is a couple decades before. Early church, probably even to Pentecost, to call someone an ancient disciple. Now, Cyprus is not specifically mentioned as one of those places represented in Acts 2, but sure that list is not exhaustive. It's possible, I would say probable, that he was one of those converted even then, and he's an ancient disciple. And Paul stays with him. Paul's shortly going to be facing people who will bind him and seek to kill him because of the gospel. And here's Manasin, another reminder that decades before, God moved and saved people, and they are persevering decades later, here even in Jerusalem. And he looks around the table and can look at people from Asia and from Greece, more recent converts, who are also coming to Jerusalem with him. They're Gentiles. And they passed by Cyprus and up the coast where churches would have been planted to Caesarea where the spirits poured out on teenage girls. Things are radically different than they were 20 years before. 
God is at work here. Jesus is enthroned and reigning and moving. And they are going to bind my hands and feet and hand me over to the Romans. Both. The will of the Lord be done. That's the passage for today. It's, it's a, a journey. It's a, it's a trip with a point. It's not just a travel log. There's a point here modeled in Paul and his experiences in the midst of these circumstances that he's facing. Let me try to sum up that point in just a sentence. God requires and encourages our full commitment to him. God requires of each of us that we live fully committed to him. All in, if you will. Fully. And he strongly encourages and aids in us the development of that very perspective. Both. Requiring and encouraging. I'm just going to split that sentence into half and talk about those two points. Let me begin with the requiring part. God requires our full commitment to Christ even amidst hardship. I might actually say especially amidst hardship because that's the only time that the commitment's actually tested when you face a challenge to it. He requires our full commitment even amidst hardship. Surely we're supposed to read verse 13 and resonate with it. Paul says, I'm ready even to die for the sake of the name of Jesus. And we're supposed to say, that is right. And we're supposed to end up in verse 14 with the other disciples saying, that's right, the will of the Lord be done. They don't say that out of some resignation, well, I mean, I guess we couldn't get him to do what we want, so we'll have to let him do what God wants. It's not a resignation like that. It's a turning of their priorities. They have come to see he is not yielding. He's committed to this. And you know, that's right. That's hard, but that's right. I cannot say anything other than that. And you're a Christian. You know, you can't say anything other than that. You can't say, you're a Christian. You can't say it. My will be done, not God's. You can't say that. That's where they end up. That's where we're supposed to end up. They end up there in regards to his will for Paul's life, and we're supposed to end up there for ourselves. I'm ready. I'm committed to living in any way, for anything, at any cost, his will be done. That's where we're supposed to be. It's the only appropriate way to react to somebody who was called Lord, Master, Ruler. Subjects don't tell lords what they will do. Servants don't talk to masters like that, determining which is and which is not an acceptable requirement. Employees can talk to employers like that, they have recourse. If they don't like it, they can quit or they can go on strike or something like that. But subject, master, servant, lord, the relationship does not work like that. The, the orders go one way. We know that. That's what he wants from us, full commitment to Christ in every area of life. In your, your role in the workplace, in your family, in your relationships, in your marriage, with your finances, in your inner thoughts and attitudes with what you value, with what you hope for. In all things, you must say, God expects and requires 
the will of the Lord be done. I will live oriented towards him. Like he is the north star and things happen that knock my needle off and a compass, but you come back. It always comes back. He requires that. Must be. Especially and even amidst hardship. And hardship is coming. We know that. Jesus said so in John 14. In this world you will have trouble. Paul said so in Acts 14, speaking to the churches, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is no surprise here. As was said earlier in in the, the choir testimony performance, whatever you call that, we know there's trouble coming in life. If you haven't had any, you just haven't lived long enough. All of us will face trial and tribulation. And Acts 14 actually said this is God's intention. The we must, in that passage you might recall, is, is a statement of divine necessity. God has determined that it be so. That we enter into the kingdom, into his fullness of blessed reign through trouble. The road to that place always and deliberately passes through storms. Difficult terrain. Hardship. So deliberation there. We must enter the kingdom passing through hardship. Why? So that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. 1 Peter 1. Peter's talking about hardship there, and he says this is so that purpose, divine necessity, so that your faith will be tested, shown to be genuine, and will result in glory for Christ. Glory for Christ. In your life, did you experience everything that I had was, is gone? And he is enough. Praise him. Glory to Christ from the lives of those watching when they say everything the guy had is gone and he's still at rest. Huh. There's purpose in this. There's purpose in hardship. And it requires our steadfast commitment to him, especially amidst hardship, so as to shine forth the glory of Christ and bless people, not just to make Christ look good at our expense, but to make Christ look good for us. As Christ is lifted up and your heart goes with him, you find, wow, my heart's sustained by him. That's good. He's good. I experience his love and his grace. And other people see and they're witnessed to by that and perhaps come to faith. That's for their good and his glory. Both. Can you imagine what it would be like to clean out your desk at Lehman Brothers in this last week at peace whistling? Crazy. But wouldn't it be remarkable to realize, you know, I just lost my job in an industry that's not hiring. What am I going to do? You know, I'm okay with that. I'm at peace. I am at rest. And you walk around the office to everybody else whose lives are falling apart, 
and you encourage them and you talk to them, maybe pray with them. At least they know something unique is going on in this guy's life and he's a Christian. Huh. Now, I, I don't think any of us work for that company or used to work for that company. So that probably doesn't directly apply to you, but what does apply to you? What are the hardships and trials and turmoils in your life through which he is expecting and requiring steadfast commitment? What are they? Maybe it involves conflict with other people like it did for Paul. Probably not, though. It probably more involves a temptation. The hardship provides a temptation for you to lapse into, I'll just say, self-focus. A prioritizing of self's desires and achieved by self's means. Uh, A resting in self's pleasures or an anxiety over self's deprivations. Rather than the steadfast commitment to the Lord that says, your will be done and I will experience joy in it, whatever it is. Probably something in your life provides that for you. I'm mindful of the context of this book, and so I want to talk specifically about evangelism. Because the context of the book is not just about all the various problems of life, of which there are thousands, but particularly of the issue of making Christ known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to which all of us are called, of which, in which we all have a part. Differently, we're all, all different, but we all have a part in that, And it's going to be hard. It's going to challenge each of us in some way or another. Are you being faithful, steadfastly committed to Christ in the face of the hardship you will encounter as you seek to make Him known? Or are you shrinking away from that and saying, you know, I'm just going to live my life. I could invite over those neighbors to dinner, but it's a lot easier to just do what we usually do and have dinner for ourselves. I could walk across the street and talk to him. I could also mow my lawn. I think the temptation, when you face the hardship, there's a barrier there I have to break through. I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know if I know the answers. It's going to cost me my time and my resources. There's some sort of a hardship there, and the temptation is to just live the same old self-oriented life that we usually live. So I want to bring up evangelism and say whatever particular way that applies in your life, whatever particular type of evangelism is best suited for how God's made you, are you steadfastly committed to Him through the hardships that you will encounter if you pursue evangelism? Now, there's lots of other things in life, too, because we're all called to do many other things. Parent your kids. Love your spouse. Be faithful and, and upright in your work relationships. There are all kinds of things at which, in which you will face hardships. God requires steadfast, firm commitment to Him in the midst of those things, despite the hardship perhaps even because of it. That's going to be hard. How do you get there? That's the second observation. That's the second half of the statement here. God does not just say, I require 
this commitment of you. Now get to it. He doesn't just say that. He requires it and he encourages it strongly. The second point is that God strongly encourages and nurtures this full commitment that he requires. How does he do that? Not with some sort of an encouragement that says, you can do it. It's something more substantive than that. And I think there are two things that this passage brings up. One is is more central. I'm going to deal with that one second. The the first one's kind of hinted at. I'm going to talk about the, the less obvious one first. The less obvious one, less obvious way that he encourages and nurtures this commitment is related to the working of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. Paul knows what he is supposed to do. Very often in our lives, uncertainty and fear and therefore a tendency to waver away from what God has required is connected with not being exactly real sure what God's required. It's at the very root of the first wavering away from God. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? Really? Very beginning of the Bible. An uncertainty sown about what God said, about what the will of the Lord is. And to the degree that Eve says, I'm not real sure, or Adam, I'm not entirely convinced There's a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of a tendency sown there to waver and turn away. Paul didn't struggle with that because he knew this is what I am supposed to do. And he was certain of it. Now, unlike Paul, we don't have that kind of a definitive spirit visiting repeatedly telling me this is what you should do. He's got a unique experience there. Even if you know, despite what we think about the prophetic gift today, and if God still speaks that way, we all would acknowledge that God does not speak that way constantly to every one of us all day long. Should I go across the street and talk to him? The Spirit does not show up and say yes. So we've got a little bit of uncertainty there. On the other hand, though, God the Spirit does speak to us in a lot of ways in the Scriptures and lays out a lot of things about the path that we are supposed to walk. So I don't know necessarily that I'm supposed to go across the street and talk to so-and-so, but I do know that I am to be wisely and boldly testifying to Christ, living, sacrificing my time and my resources, caring for other people as a servant to them and loving them. So I've got a lot of the path laid out for me here. I'm not saying that we can get totally away from a little bit of uncertainty, but I'm saying that there's something here that helped Paul a word from the Lord. This is what you should be about. And we have a lot of that ourselves. That's the first, I think, the the less profound way that God encourages our steadfast commitment to him. The most clear way in this passage has to deal with this trip down memory lane. What's going on with that? Why does he take them through that path? He takes them to Cyprus, along the churches of the coast, to Philip, to his daughters, to Agabus, to Manasin. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. God tells him, I'm taking you through tribulation. Remain steadfast to me 
And on the way, let me pass you by a couple decades worth of trouble-filled missions and persecution and Christians on the run and facing famine and look at all of that and marvel at it and praise what I have done in it. You sail past Cyprus where the powers of Satan himself opposed you. And did I not stand by your side and strike him down and lift up the gospel? Yes, I did. You come to the coastal countries, constantly at war with my people throughout history. The coastal regions, now with churches in them. You visit Philip. Philip, who on the run from a persecution that, oh, you started back when you were Saul. Philip, on the run from a persecution, planted churches all through there, the evangelist. And look at his daughters that I have given my spirit to. And Agabus. When was the last time you met Agabus, Paul? And what did I speak through him and how did I answer the problem? I moved my people to give to alleviate the concern. Look, walk through history with me, Paul. Have I not at every turn brought hardship and grace, both? Everywhere, constantly. I have always stood up and poured grace upon grace upon my people. And that which I was yesterday, I am surely today, and I will be tomorrow when you walk into the lion's den in Jerusalem. That's who I am. That's what I do. Look back and move ahead with me. That's the point of the trip down memory lane. Do you get that? Let me summarize this. I think this is a profound truth here. He says not only, like, like he did last week, how do you live that life that's got the reoriented priorities? Last week, Paul put them in the Scriptures. I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, able to build you up. He put them in the scriptures last week. This week, God puts him in his photo album, if you will. Think of that. I was there, wasn't I? Yeah. Think of that. I was there, wasn't I? Yeah. Think of that. I was there, wasn't I? Yes. I had a pastor once who preached a sermon series called Stones of Remembrance in which he focused on various passages in the Old Testament where God moved his people to pile up rocks at certain locations to remember what he had done there. Lots of little piles of rocks for this and that and the other. The greatest of these, I think, is the 12-stone memorial on the Israel side of the Jordan River. God led his people into the promised land, into the kingdom, along a path of tribulation, wandering through the desert, Facing hostile enemies, he provided for them, he protected for them, until at the very end they come up against the Jordan River flowing at flood stage, and the journey is over. There's not a thing we can do about this, is there? No, there isn't. How do you get millions of people across a flooded river at that time in history? You don't. Until God makes a way. And he told them, take the ark of my presence 
I am present in the Ark of the Covenant. Take the Ark, walk into the flooded river, and as you go, I will dry up the river. And they heard that, they believed, and he did it. He dried up this flooded river, and the priest stood with the Ark in the middle of the river, and he told them, have one person from each tribe. He's making this personal. Grab a stone from at the feet of those priests in the middle of the flooded river and carry it over here onto dry land on the Israel side and pile them up as stones of remembrance. So that later when your kids say, Dad, what's with the rocks? You'll say, back then, the Lord brought us into this land on dry ground, across and through a flooded river. He carried us through, out of Egypt, through the desert, across that flooded river, into this land. Son, daughter, does it make any sense that he will now abandon us? No. If he was about abandoning us, he could have done it then. But he didn't because he isn't. So look. Look at these stones and remember the grace of God and believe him for grace tomorrow. That's the kind of God that he is. He makes a way for his people. Do you have stones of remembrance in your life? Do you have things or people or photo albums or rocks even? I know people who do that. That you look at and you say, I remember. God was there. He showed up. This is a worthwhile thing to do because I'm, I'm surprised at how quickly I can forget that. I face a financial hardship today and it's like the end of the world. And I can't remember a couple years ago in seminary, broke, having child number two and number three, one of which we didn't have health insurance for. Wife not working, me trying to work, trying to go to school. I don't know exactly how all that got paid for. I know how some of it got paid for, but I don't know how all of it got paid for, but it did. Sometimes in some remarkable ways. And I also forgot, I mentioned this before, we somehow acquired a brand new van in the process too. But I forget all that when I'm looking at the checkbook today. In case you haven't noticed, the United States is in a little bit of financial crisis right now. And I don't know, but I'm assuming that's affecting some people sitting right here. Has God ever been present with you in the midst of a financial crisis before? Has he? Sure. Did you come through that by his grace? Yes. Is he going to abandon you now? No. So hold fast to him. And you find that by looking back at what he's done before. And ultimately, you know what the greatest stone of remembrance is? The greatest stone of remembrance is actually made out of wood. It is the cross. Because if he's never come through for you financially before, if this is the first one you faced, you can at least, and I would say you should first look and say, I don't know anything but that he is for me. Because he bought me with the blood of his own. I don't have any idea where this money's going to come from. I don't have any idea what's going to happen with the cancer I have. I don't have any idea what my kids are going to do. But he is for me. Look at the cross. He has delivered me from the greatest danger that I will ever face. This one he can handle too. 
And like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, if he does not deliver me, I die and go to heaven. Praise the Lord. Do you believe that? It's true. He requires steadfast commitment of us, and he strongly encourages it by showing us constantly, picture after picture, I was here, and I was there, and I was there, and I did it. I was for you. I will be. Trust me for future grace, too. Brothers and sisters, he requires, he expects, and he encourages firm commitment to him. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, you are indeed faithful. It's one of the many things that you highlight as the difference between you and people, is that you are faithful. You're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so, Lord, I pray, would you give us grace to see and to remember and therefore then to believe and trust. Give us grace towards that end, Father. We are prone to wander. Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the one we love. But would you take and bind our hearts to you, fasten them to you. Grab hold of the fetters that are attached to our feet and grip them in your hand that we cannot fly from you. That would be restraining, yes, but it would be glorious grace too because you are our home. The lover of our souls, hold us fast to you, I pray. Show us your mercy and your grace in the past and move us to trust your mercy and your grace tomorrow. And I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.